G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you as always, and good to be with you for today's topic, which is a fascinating topic and one that we've spoken a little bit about before on the podcast. And we've called today's episode Dealing with the Disruption of Depersonalization. So, Dad, obviously we missed out on the alliteration in the last podcast, so we thought we'd make up for it with a bit of lost time with today's topic. And so we'll obviously be speaking about depersonalization, but do you want to just give us a bit more of an idea of what we're going to be talking about today? Okay, so depersonalization relates to a dissociative symptom, and we'll talk a bit more about dissociation shortly. But uh, it follows on from our episode last time about depersonalization during panic attacks. So we'll talk about this really uncomfortable feeling that people can have as though their body isn't real or standing outside their body. It's like this disruption in people's experience of continuity, of their connection with their body. And there are other difficulties that go with that. And whereas we talked about panic attacks last time and how this experience might show up then, today we're talking more generally about depersonalization. And I remember it was one thing that came up in our demystifying dissociation episode that we did a little while ago on the podcast, just that idea about the way that I suppose Hollywood has infiltrated some of the ideas for dissociation and obviously in the pursuit of making movies and wanting to entertain people, they maybe take a few liberties with the clinical aspect of dissociation. So uh, I suppose just to that end, one of the things that I found really interesting with our website is one of the more popular articles is on dissociation. It's been accessed all around the world, basically, you know, every continent. So it seems to be something that is cross-cultural in many ways. It's not as if it's something that's just experienced in the West or something. It is something that people around the world experience. Is that something that you've come across too? Yes, certainly. And often dissociative experiences relate to what we call complex trauma or repeated trauma in childhood. It could be repeated sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse and neglect. And there are characteristic patterns that show up in the impact of repeated traumatic experience in childhood. And it often does lead to disruptions in people's sense of themselves, their identity, their continuous awareness. We'll talk about how it can relate to amnesia in different ways. But certainly when people have had repeated painful experiences, our mind can work in ways to try and block out the pain which interferes with our cognitive and emotional processing. And that's a lot of what dissociation is about. And all around the world, it'll tend to have that similar kind of impact. So it probably impacts at quite a basic biological and emotional level. Well, it is something that we chatted a little bit about on that Demystifying Dissociation podcast. So look, if you are listening to this and and you would like a bit of an introduction to dissociation and dissociative disorders, that Demystifying Dissociation podcast is a, a bit of a 101 for dissociation in terms of a bit of an introductory episode there. So feel free to go back and check that one out. But Dad, just for the purposes of today's podcast and giving us a bit of context for what we're talking about today, what actually is dissociation? Okay, now dissociation is a disruption or a sense of detachment from our body. It can be detachment from our usual memories, so in other words, amnesia. We can also feel detached from the world that we call derealization, feeling as though the world isn't real. It can be getting in certain kind of trance states, often in response to stress. And there's also another example where we can be detached from our usual sense of identity, something called dissociative identity disorder, used to be called multiple personality disorder. And that's when people have two or more quite distinct personality states, as well as periods of missing time or disruption to memory. So when people shift from one state to another, or when people are not in their usual state, they might not remember so much of what's happened before. But how actually dissociative disorders experienced in everyday clinical practice is more commonly people might be referred for depression or they might be referred with what's known as a borderline personality disorder where people have difficulties with regulating emotions or impulse control or consistency in how they connect with other people so their relationships are disrupted in some way. And then dissociative experiences are often part of that. used to find, say, with the war veterans worked with at the Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital, 
about half of those war veterans presenting with post-traumatic stress disorder also had significant dissociative symptoms. And we find that with many people referred to our practice with PTSD, it could be after a car accident, but often it will be associated with past abuse or trauma, that about 50% of people will have quite significant dissociative symptoms as well. And this used to be somewhat disregarded because it's kind of unusual and, and people also might hide the level of dissociation they experience within themselves. It can feel so weird. For example, people not feeling connected to their body or as though at one time they're acting like such a different person to another time that they give themselves different names, that kind of thing, or just dissociative amnesia or even having a fugue state. So one fellow I knew was living interstate for six months and had no memory for his prior identity. He didn't know who he was for that period of time. And so it can present in really remarkably strange ways, but by the same token, often you have to explore directly with people whether they have dissociative experiences because they might be keeping a bit of that to themselves. Often it'll be more presenting with, again, it might be alcohol and drug problems, post-traumatic stress, depression, significant anxiety reactions. But when people have a history of trauma... I think it's worth checking whether people also have dissociative experiences, certainly in a therapy context. And many people, we look out for that as well because it's often under-recognised and probably would have applied to about, say, 15% of people attending outpatient hospital services, for example, a mental health service. About 15% would have some kind of dissociative condition. It might be in addition to, say, post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's much more common than people are often aware of, and we'll be talking about something called depersonalisation, derealisation disorder later on that probably affects about 2% of the population, which is still a lot of people, even if it's not a very common condition. Well, it is something that I'm interested to get into with you today, Dad, but I think it would just be interesting to have a little bit of a chat now about, obviously last week we spoke about the idea of dissociation in terms of depersonalization and derealization in panic attacks. But what I wonder is how do we discern between a almost panic response, whether it be a temporary anxiety response, and something that is a little bit more entrenched to the point that we would call it a disorder? Okay, well, there'll be some mechanisms that overlap, but just say, as we talked about last time with depersonalization in panic attacks, there are probably a few things going on. One is the person somewhat, well, agitated, that goes with the other panic symptoms, and also very vigilant about their body and how they're reacting. But with the agitation and distress, then what can happen is part of our frontal lobe can be activated that's trying to inhibit our emotional reaction. So it inhibits the limbic system, so the fight and flight response. And by dampening that, that probably helps us respond better in a number of situations, dampening that distress. So what's happening is there's this numbing that's coming in. So people have, with panic attacks, the agitation and the numbing and being very vigilant about their body, including noticing the feeling weird, noticing how their body doesn't seem to belong to them, for example. It's very uncomfortable. Now, that can be a reaction during a panic attack, but what if this becomes a more regular kind of pattern? almost like a more regular habit where the person is getting into a habit of looking to dampen their emotions in some ways. For example, being on autopilot. That's when it can become a more general thing and we'll also talk about it later on how people probably can also use some kind of hypnotic mechanisms to look to dampen pain. We'll talk about some of that. But there's a, a numbing response that comes from part of the frontal lobes trying to inhibit the reaction of the limbic system, the emotional reaction. So that's where people will tend to have less limbic system activity, that fight-and-flight brain activity, in emotional situations because they're numbing it. And people often have a combination of sometimes being triggered and very agitated and acting very agitated and other times acting quite numb. And that can sometimes look bipolar when it's actually this other mechanism happening. So the general gist of it is it becomes more entrenched, more persistent, more frequent. People overuse that kind of strategy. And so then are people aware that it is something that they're experiencing in terms of obviously there may be a feeling of strangeness or, or weirdness to it all, 
But are people often able to, I suppose, put their finger on the fact that there could even be something maybe biologically to do with their brain chemistry, which isn't quite unquote normal state, but it, but in terms of maybe there is something, uh, yeah, as I say, biologically within themselves that is eliciting this response. I think often people notice the numbness and the weird feeling, but as we'll talk about with a couple of case examples later on, often people are not so aware of how they're also almost deliberately using depersonalization to dampen emotional distress, even if it becomes a bit unconscious through habit. So often people are not so aware how they're using it. And one of the ways they become more aware is when they decide to look to be more present and allow themselves to feel their feelings more fully, they're sometimes surprised to notice even things like hunger or fatigue or, or pain. They notice these other experiences more because they're not numbing them as much. And before they might not have realised how much they were actually trying to switch off these feelings. And so is it mainly depersonalisation and derealisation that we do associate with dissociative disorders? Are there other types, for example? Now, and they often go together because depersonalisation is a sense of being detached from your body. And that could be feeling as though your body isn't real or standing outside yourself looking on almost as though you're watching another person. This sense of being outside yourself. And derealisation is to do with your sense of the world around you. For example, feeling that the world around you is not real. Or maybe looking at the world as though through a fog or seeing yourself as being detached from the world in some way, in some uncomfortable way or some strange kind of way. So they often go together, those experiences, but they also often overlap with some other dissociative experiences such as amnesia, memory disturbance. And there is a condition called dissociative amnesia where the primary symptoms relate to the person having a loss of memory. It could be for certain specific events, like a traumatic situation, or it could be a more general thing, like people can have amnesia for a part of their life. And, for example, people who have severe repeated trauma in childhood who develop dissociative disorders often have difficulty remembering anything before about eight years of age, whereas most people will be remembering quite a number of things you know, even up until six, certainly eight years of age. But for some people, it's like a blank. So it's as though their mind has been blocking out painful experiences all along and not registering things so much. So there's dissociative amnesia, and then there's depersonalization, derealization. That's another dissociative disorder. Then there's dissociative identity disorder, a very significant condition which often involves depersonalization and often involves amnesia. But in addition, there's this identity disturbance. For example, people are experiencing themselves as a different person from one time to another, commonly with different names. And it used to be thought at times that if people supposedly had multiple personality or dissociative identity disorder, it must have been a naive therapist asking them some thoughtless questions that cued them to act as though they were a different person, such as we would have seen in the movie Sybil or Three Faces of Eve. There are a number of movies about, say, dissociative identity disorder. But what I found with a number of clients is that they actually use these different names or these different personas from an early age, even well before people started talking about dissociative identity disorder. So it just showed they had this sense of separateness within themselves and like different parts of them would take control at different times. And they might have amnesia when they're in one state for how they did or experienced things when they're in another state. Now, some of that amnesia will tend to go also with depersonalisation, but it'll tend to be most prominent with dissociative identity disorder. So these symptoms tend to hang together a bit. And then we sometimes call it dissociative disorder not otherwise specified, meaning that it's a more general condition that doesn't quite reached the um, diagnostic criteria of dissociative identity disorder, but it has a lot of the similar characteristics. And you can get other kind of specific conditions like something called dissociative trance disorder. And I'll just mention that because it shows how dissociative disorders often have an overlap with hypnosis. There was a lady who was a mannequin who was employed to lie on a bed in the front window of a department store. This is many years ago. I learned this in a hypnosis course, this story. It's a true story. And when it was the time to finish her shift, so she'd get up and leave the window. I think that she was like, it was advertising a bed mattress or whatever. So she was lying on that. She's meant to lie on it like she's asleep. Now, at the end of a shift, no one could rouse her. 
She's just lying there and it's not as if she was just asleep because they couldn't rouse her in any way and people thought this is really weird and they thought let's get someone who knows something about hypnosis because they thought it was like she was in a hypnotic trance, which in fact she was. Well, they found a hypnotherapist who came, walked into the department store window, walked up to her and whispered something in her ear. She immediately got up and ran out. And people around couldn't believe it. She'd become so animated when she'd been in such a trance. And they asked him, what did you say to her? And he said, I explained that while you lie there, you might think you're simply resting or asleep. But every minute, your kidneys are working to produce urine, drip, 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 going in your bladder. If you don't get up very soon, you're going to wet yourself. And she immediately jumped up and responded. Now that showed that part of her mind was still operating, like as we say in hypnosis, like a hidden observer. But at the time she wasn't responding, so she she was acting like she was in a hypnotic trance. That person understood that. And I think that's an interesting example because it also shows how other people were freaked out that they couldn't rouse her, even though in a way being in a hypnotic trance is a relatively normal state under hypnosis. Many people can be in a hypnotic trance. It's just that if that happens unbidden or spontaneously, then people can freak out with that. Also with hypnosis, people can experience amnesia. Also with hypnosis, people can experience being out of their body. If someone has their arm pinned under a truck, for example, under a truck wheel, If a hypnotherapist were there, they might suggest to the person that their arm doesn't belong to their body. And many people can manage that image or idea so they no longer feel so much pain. But if someone suddenly experiences that part of their body they have no feeling or experiencing paralysis or big gaps in their memory, even though experiences like this can be induced with hypnosis, if that happens unbidden or spontaneously, often people freak out and they think that they're losing their mind. But they're hypnotic mechanisms that it would seem involved here. Well, it is just a, a fascinating phenomenon in terms of that hypnotic aspect. And oh, look, Dad, I, I probably shouldn't joke about it, but at the same time, my, my first thought when you were telling me that story is... Geez, I bet the beds were flying out the door before they were able to get her up in terms of <laughs> absolutely you know, jobs. So. They, they might have spoiled their sales pitch. <laughs> exactly. Or yeah. So, but yeah, absolutely fascinating story that someone, I suppose, yeah, could be in in such a state in that situation, seemingly out of the blue. Actually, another example of how that came up spontaneously, a different kind of thing, paralysis. I knew a war veteran who explained to me that it. At one stage, he was paralysed for a period of more than a month and people did not believe that he was paralysed. They thought he was making it up. But he explained to me completely believably how he had to train himself to walk again. But they recognised 100 years ago with studies in hysteria, for example, which relates to dissociation as well, that people could experience paralysis for a psychological reason. So again, it's like a hypnotic mechanism happening. But the person themselves can feel literally paralysed or no feeling in a part of their body, or something like that, even though there's not a specific biological reason for that. That could be hard for us to get our head around, but it is partly how our brain, and through hypnotic mechanisms, can block out certain kinds of feelings or reactions or memories. And when it boils down to it, with any dissociative experience, including depersonalisation disorder, the chances are that the person would prefer not to be in their body at the time where they might experience painful feelings or they might prefer not to have a certain memory in mind which is distressing and disturbing. So I think that a lot of dissociative experience, including depersonalisation, often starts off with a person, in a sense, is trying not to be feeling what they're feeling, to try and be outside of their body or as though the world is not real because their world at the time is pretty frightening or overwhelming and I think you can see there as well how for example Hollywood would get their hands on something like for example a dissociative experience and I suppose almost take it to the nth degree in terms of the just the the sheer weirdness and strangeness of something like that but I find it interesting there that you mentioned the mechanisms for dissociation because talking about the prevalence of dissociation within the community it would suggest that there's some, I suppose, evolutionary benefits to the idea of dissociating and, as you say, not necessarily feeling the pain within your own skin in situations that would otherwise be incredibly painful. 
But I wonder what are those mechanisms for depersonalization? If we can just get into a little bit more how it actually works in terms of the body. Okay, well, if we look at the numbing element where the person feels weird and detached from themselves, I think that there are a couple of different kind of mechanisms. I think one kind of mechanism is the numbing aspect where the person who would otherwise feel great distress and very agitated, again, that part of the frontal lobes kicks in to try and inhibit the reaction, so the numbing factor. And we imagine through evolution, if we could numb distress at the time, if we were feeling overwhelmed, that might help us keep on, do what we need to do, uh, hunt or run away from danger or something like that. There's another aspect of dissociation which is more people's distress spilling out of them and I think the person's mind feeling so overwhelmed, for example, in the midst of a trauma situation that the person doesn't have their usual sense of memory and connection to themselves and the world around because they're just so flooded with distressing information that it's like their frontal lobes aren't working so well so they don't remember or process things so much or feel so usual. So I think that could be a reaction to being overwhelmed. I think also there is this hypnotic mechanism that can kick in and the person can be acting as though they're not in their body or standing outside themselves. For example, a number of people I know with this depersonalization experience say it happens more often when they're in a stressful kind of situation or feeling somewhat agitated. And I think that people can almost get overused to being outside their body or not feeling their usual bodily feelings and emotions in a way that it might give them a little bit of relief. But unfortunately, it means that they're also not feeling so much their sense of hunger or tiredness or even pain. It might seem like it's good to not feel pain so much but if the person's kind of disconnected from their body they mightn't be responding to dealing with that pain so well either just like with hunger or tiredness so these cues that might be uncomfortable for us even like hunger well that can prompt us to act appropriately in the world to deal with that and when people have prominent repeated dissociation and depersonalization they might take a little less care of their bodies as a result. Well, again, you know, it is such a fascinating phenomenon and it is so interesting, I think, talking about it because you recognise that it is, you know, in many ways a natural mechanism when we talk about it like that. And I suppose what's interesting to me about that is, you know, we have, I suppose, this perception that when people lose touch with reality a little bit, we almost immediately start to think of psychosis in terms of, you know, you might see someone, for example, on the street who doesn't look like they're particularly in touch with reality and your first thought is, you know, maybe goes to psychosis. Or if you're in that situation, I imagine your first thought would be, for example, you know, am I going crazy? Am I losing my mind? And I think we almost simplify things a little bit to the degree where we do, for example, see someone who's acting as though they're not you know, in touch with reality, and we automatically put it down to psychosis. So I wonder if we can even just pick up on some of the differences between psychosis, because obviously that loss of touch with reality is a, is a huge part of psychosis too. So how just are they different? Yes, that's a very good point, because when we see people with more severe dissociative conditions, then often they do wonder if they've lost their sanity or if they're losing their mind. And probably part of that is when people are very agitated then our prefrontal cortex, that part of our frontal lobes which is most aware of our circumstances and ourselves and the world and problem solves and remembers things and makes sense of things and learns from mistakes, all this kind of thing, our prefrontal cortex tends to switch off to some extent if we're really agitated. Like again, if our limbic system is really fired up in a fight and flight response, then our prefrontal cortex will tend to switch off and say vice versa. And I think that experience of our... Frontal lobes being switched off, especially the prefrontal cortex, is a bit like losing your mind. But it's not the same as psychosis in that when people have dissociative experiences, much of the time they might seem to others to be functioning in a reasonably intact way. They might be managing work roles quite well, how they relate to other people. Much of the time they might appear normal. One of the things is often people with, say, dissociative identity disorder will hear voices, but it might be like different parts of themselves in conversation with each other. Whereas more with psychosis, it tended to be a voice from, say, outside of one's mind rather than some kind of internal 
conversation or a voice from outside of one's head where if people, for example, have paranoid schizophrenia, often they've had a period of six months or more of deterioration in their functioning, difficulty working, difficulty managing with a range of everyday kind of roles. And often there's a limited insight that people have into their emerging disturbance. Whereas people with dissociative experiences are often quite vigilant with what is happening internally. Often, for example, they might also have a degree of social anxiety, more prone to panic attacks. Just as an aside, also with dissociative experiences and depersonalisation, people are more likely also to have tinnitus. About 30% of people might have tinnitus who have depersonalisation disorder, which means that very persistent pattern of depersonalisation. And about another 30% will tend to have migraines. So you get these other somatic symptoms that often go with it as well. But it's the changeability in people's functioning, which is a little bit like being in a hypnotic trance or not. Outside of the hypnotic trance, people are functioning quite normally. But when they're going through that depersonalisation experience, which is often more brief and reversible, even if people can have a habit of developing it, but it is more brief and reversible, then that's different from the pattern of, say, a chronic psychotic condition where people's functioning is degraded more generally, so to speak. And so you speak about, for example, that vigilance that people who are suffering from dissociative symptoms may experience, and that may not be there with, for example, psychosis. So I wonder then, do people recognise that, as you say, they're maybe having a, a conversation with what seems like an external voice, do they recognise on some level that that is an internal part of themselves? Because, I must admit, I don't know a whole lot about it, but it seems to me with psychosis that maybe there isn't that recognition that the voice that is speaking to them at that time isn't maybe a part of their, you know, self with a capital S, if that makes sense, in terms of yeah, their, their real deeper personality. Yes, I think often with people with psychosis, there are other delusions that come with it and a lack of insight, if you like, about people's level of disturbance is more common. And of course, there are quite a range of different psychotic conditions, like bipolar disorder might be somewhat different from that. And then you'll tend to get people having a manic phase where they might have spending sprees and little need to sleep and a pressure of speech and things like that that show up and then perhaps alternate with periods of, of depression. But with dissociative experience, generally people don't have delusions and they have a more intact sense of reality, so to speak. They know that their reactions are weird to some extent. That's partly why they won't tell other people about them in different ways. They might keep it very much to themselves. And that's partly the importance of people receiving what we call psychoeducation in therapy to recognise that these conditions don't relate to psychosis. It's part of the reason why we have podcasts on this kind of topic, because it makes a big difference to people to recognise that what they're dealing with is different from psychosis and often there's a good outcome down the track provided that people learn to deal with their emotions more directly in different ways. We'll come back to this later on if people learn to deal with their painful experience and emotions within their own skin rather than in a sense being outside of themselves or detached or disconnected or blocking off memories. Well, let's actually get into a couple of examples now because I know that, that you had a discussion with some people who were kind enough to allow us the permission to have this chat about them. And of course, you know, I've changed names of who we're going to talk about and all that sort of thing. But with something like this, I know you came across a, a couple of instances where people just had such articulate ways of putting things and, and they had such a good way of explaining things that we thought it would be beneficial for everyone else to hear too. So Dad, do you want to just start off by maybe our first example of who we're going to call Jason. So do you want to just give us a bit of an insight into his experience? Yes, well look, one of the things that I think is so helpful about describing Jason's experience is he was very articulate about what he did experience and ways of improving his situation, but also he got in touch with me after hearing our first podcast on demystifying dissociation, as well as looking at our handout on dealing with dissociative symptoms. And so he found that very helpful because he described that information was very relatable. And he said, and I'll, I'll quote what he said, he said, it validated a lot of things that were going on in my head that weren't being spoken about. It was not just created in my mind, it made the issue feel real, in the real world. I almost wasn't aware of it for a long time. 
I thought that was how everyone perceived reality. So he was talking about the depersonalization and the derealization. And I think this is a really helpful example he gave of how his dissociation might have developed. He described that when he was in his family around 10 years of age, at times there were really tumultuous things happening in his family. A lot of conflict and certain situations where people really felt unsafe or at threat because of what was happening. And he said that during some of these episodes of threatening behaviour, he said he would hide under the table, the way he described it, not in that situation, but observing it. So he recognised he had a way of almost detaching himself from the situation and actually even to some extent from his body because he said that he found a way to not experience the situation emotionally. And so he thought to himself, this is awesome. He even described that he felt that he discovered a cheat code in life. Now, imagine a cheat code is something that maybe comes up in video games where maybe you can take yourself out of some dimension or something <laughs> on those lines. But I think the telling thing is that he thought to himself, this is awesome. He found an experience that was helpful that I think relates to normal hypnosis. He just happened upon that, which actually people at their peak age of hypnotic ability between about 8 and 12 years so if people are under repeated stress at those times, they might well overuse this hypnotic mechanism to not be in the situation. So then he described if he had other emotional experiences he didn't like, for example, if he was bored at school, he said, well, if I don't want to be there, I don't have to be. So in many situations, he might be in the classroom, but he was saying, it was like I'm gone, sitting outside the classroom or whatever. Now, it's sometimes said that it's not well understood about why people might develop depersonalization, but I think that Jason's example is such a helpful one of seeing what the motive might be. It spells out the motive, but it also spells out a mechanism that sounds like a hypnotic mechanism. Hey, if I don't want to be here in this boring classroom, I don't have to be. But what happens if that gets used too much? And that's what he described when his subjective experiences, he said, was the real version of me gets pushed to the back of my mind. It leaves my body. Now, again, what if that's so appealing at times or you overuse it as like a, you know, when you're a kid? Then you might not be developing what a lot of other people are developing when they're 12 and 13 and 14 and you've got conflict with friends at school or you're worried about your performance in certain ways but you've got to deal with it in a sense more directly. We practice to deal with our emotional distress a bit like we go to the gym. You know, you pump iron, you have that resistance from the weight to build up your physical strength. Well, facing uncomfortable feelings helps build up your emotional strength. So what if you've got a way of using a cheat code, so to speak, or some way out where you don't have to experience those painful feelings, where you're not learning to practice it so much. And, and look, I will mention too, Jason described going on from that at times to have different voices in his head that related to the idea of an identity split. So he said that in some situations, like it might have been, for example, in a work situation, he would switch persona, being louder, more confident and cocky. So there's almost like a role-playing element there supported by that hypnotic mechanism, which one form of hypnosis or one aspect of it is called imaginal involvement, using our imagination to kind of role-play in a certain sense. So maybe some of that was happening that was a payoff, but unfortunately as time went on, as he described, the only association he had with reality was pain and argument. Well, who wants to buy into pain and argument? If you don't have to be there, why be there? But you can imagine if that is developing from childhood years, it can then be overdone. And then what happens later on is people have that more disconnection and detachment from, from things. And that's where the problems of ongoing dissociative disorders tend to develop and become entrenched. Well, it's a fascinating example and there's a couple of things that come to mind there and, and I suppose the first one is that it seems to be that there's situations where we celebrate that kind of thinking. And the thing that came to mind for me when you were explaining that was the hiker Aaron Rolston who he was in a, stuck in a canyon in America and he had a boulder full on his arm. I think that movie 127 Hours was based on his experience and he had this vision of himself later in life of 
with basically missing an arm and, and he was childless at the time, but I think he basically envisioned his daughter. And it was through that detachment from the reality that he was in that he was able to then, I suppose, gain the, the energy to then basically get himself out of that situation. And so I can completely understand in terms of if you'd gained the benefit from something like that, why wouldn't you keep employing that style of thinking because it has worked for you in the past but at the same time there'd be so many situations in life which don't necessarily lend themselves to the same thinking as when your arm is stuck under a boulder you know hundreds of kilometers from any help and uh, essentially no way of getting out so you can see how it would develop and again you can see how without recognizing even exactly what was going on you could lean on, on that style of thinking a little bit. And it makes such a difference when people gain an awareness of that's what's happening. So it's a kind of avoidance, even if it's almost like an unconscious form of avoidance or it's become a habit in some way. And that's where, as Jason described, then in a number of situations, as he said, I so badly want to switch off. I so badly want to surrender myself and dissociate. I so badly want to stop feeling again. But there are a couple of things that happen from that. One is he lost a sense of control or had a sense of not having so much control later on and as he was getting older. So the way he described it later on is the best way I can describe how I used to live was the real me having one finger on the steering wheel. I could make tiny slight adjustments, but I was never able to drive the car. And I find a number of people use expressions like that. I remember one guy describing he felt like a pilot at the front of a plane and someone was playing with the rudders at the back. And others describe not feeling that they're in the driver's seat. I'll give another example a bit later on. Now, the other thing that was very interesting for Jason and so telling and where he looked to be really honest with himself and show a lot of courage is he recognised that when he got into a relationship, it was very rewarding in a number of ways. He realised that he wasn't experiencing so much of the pleasure or joy that you normally would. One of the costs of switching off feelings is not just that you're not so aware of hunger and tiredness and responding to physical pain so you act accordingly and appropriately and it helps you have good daily patterns and look after your body, that kind of thing. But it also means you don't have as much range of positive emotional experience as well. And that's when people start to get more of a sense that they want to live in a more integrated way. Challenging though, because the cost is having to get more used to experiencing painful emotions from within your own skin and not switching your frontal lobes off, keeping your frontal lobes switched on. But as people do that, we'll describe some examples later on of what that can lead to, there are real benefits that can come from that over time. Well, to me, I wonder then if there's a parallel with, for example, self-harm in terms of one thing that you hear of people who do self-harm, particularly teenagers, is it's like they want to externalise the pain in terms of, you know, they've maybe got this kind of numbing sensation and, and so they want to make tangible what that painful situation is. Could it be, for example, a little bit like that where although you don't necessarily feel the, yeah, you, you don't necessarily feel the uncomfortableness and the pain, as you say, you don't necessarily feel anything. So, yeah, I, I can, well, yeah, I can imagine that people would want to connect back with that part of themselves again, even if it was uncomfortable. Yes, that does happen. That's one of the maybe half dozen main reasons for self-harm, that the person might feel numbed and that's so uncomfortable that they want to feel something or they might want to convert emotional pain to physical pain that they might be more practiced in handling and even sometimes if people self-harm look I'll mention the example of of through cutting then sometimes the sight of blood can make people feel more real the vividness of the blood now it's a bit of a grim example but you can kind of understand if people are dealing with the discomfort of feeling numb much of the time something that makes people feel a little bit more alive or feel something can have a rewarding aspect also, there's a downside that many people are very self-critical and, and very judgmental towards themselves with dissociative experience because also what can happen with a range of emotions and part of oneself being split off from other parts of oneself, there can be extra self-critical parts 
that develop more of a mind of their own, almost demonic, sometimes in terms of a very, very extreme critical voice. And sometimes this can become elaborated into a character or a different identity or alter, which can be very destructive towards a person, a part of themselves. And that's part of the reason why it's really important to look to practice some level of self-compassion and have some level of self-understanding and looking to support yourself and treat yourself decently and well in some ways. Another reason for this podcast, encouraging some understanding and self-compassion because it's understandable how these reactions can develop. Often it is in the context of repeated trauma or distress or feeling overwhelmed where it, it child especially but it could be an adult but where a child would want to not be in that situation anymore we can understand it but then it means people have less usual control over their behavior ways of dealing with anger or other situations people are more at risk of being triggered by situations rather than a more planful reaction with their frontal lobe switched on well i watched that movie goodwill hunting the other night dad and there's that super famous scene where robin williams character says to matt damon's character you know it's not your fault and you know keeps repeating it not it's not your fault it's not your fault and eventually matt damon's character kind of breaks down upon the realization that in fact it is not his fault and and to me that's what comes to mind there in terms of you know that that's a, a Hollywood example of someone who, you know, I suppose lambasts and criticises themselves, but it wasn't until, yeah, someone basically said to them, you know, it's not your fault that this is happening, uh, that they were able to be easy on themselves. And that also gives people more encouragement to show oneself some self-compassion, for example, and giving encouragement, it makes it easier for the person or more accessible for the person to make the courageous change of allowing themselves to feel their feelings and have that strength within them. And that's what happened with Jason. And I do want to mention this because he's provided such a good example of someone showing the courage to experience themselves more within their own skin that the way he describes it now is that he feels more present and engaged. He didn't need to switch off so much. He was there more often than not. So whereas previously he felt as though the world was a simulation quite literally a simulation, he felt that none of it was real. Now he senses, I exist now, which is a real self-acceptance in itself. And he was describing that he couldn't go back to that previous perspective he had so much because now he'd, in a sense, seen through the whole thing. He'd understood it so much. So in a way, he'd scrambled that kind of way of dealing with things and now was more able to ground himself And so the way he described this, this was a terrific grounding technique I thought that he developed. He said that now I take a bit of time each day to get everything out of mind. I look around for a few minutes and think, hey, it's pretty cool. There's something rather than nothing. And it's like he had like a sense of wonder, if you like, if you looked up at the sky and thought, there's so much out there that we don't know like this sense of awe and curiosity. So he was more able to deal with his feelings and getting some encouragement from that. And so the way he put it is, in the past I could switch away from my reactions. But now I might feel angry and have an emotional response, but it's healthier. Now before, in a difficult situation, he'd constantly want to run the other way. But then as he said, but then there's a hurdle there that you actually have to jump over eventually if you want to feel good within yourself. As he said, if you want to be in a healthy place, you're going to end going back to that hurdle. So there's no point putting it off. The barrier stays there until you process it and feel things. When you can do that, then you can be on the other side of it. So there was this real awareness that dealing with dissociation is feeling things within your own skin, countering avoidance. He had an understanding He used his own grounding techniques and he could appreciate that greater sense of connection he had with himself and the world. That wouldn't mean that things would be easy the whole time for someone dealing with those long-term patterns, but there's just an encouraging, uplifting example that Jason gave and that's why I've gone through the detail we have in this podcast today because I think to many people that will really resonate with them, that direct experience from someone else who's dealing with something similar. 
Well, I think it's a bit of a cliched notion that potentially we, you know, mainly here when we're younger sort of thing, but it's that notion of, you know, what is life if it was all good and, you know, there was no troubles and no tribulations to go through along the way. Well, to me, that almost gives tangible example to that in terms of obviously, you know, we don't necessarily want uncomfortable, painful feelings all the time, but at the same time, experiencing the ups and downs of life has something to it, even if it's not always good in that sense. So, yeah, to me, that I think that helps contextualise even some of the negative emotions and, and how it can be, I suppose, good to connect with those at times. Yes, I, I like the way that you put that, and the way you put that, it reminds me of the hero's journey, which we've talked about a number of times on this podcast. So there's that notion that you're going along a certain way and then something tips the balance. It might be a crisis or something leads you to be more aware of a threat or a challenging situation, and then you tend to go through the dark night of the soul before you have some kind of aha experience or some kind of shift that you can see a way of dealing with that. But yes, the notion of the hero's journey and going through the dark night of the soul, the hero's journey, what's called from which is heroic in terms of one's own life story in dealing with depersonalization, the heroic thing is allowing oneself to feel your feelings within your own skin, even in very challenging situations. And then it helps you recognise how that goes with the territory of challenging situations. And then you have more emotions available to you that can guide you to whether a relationship is healthy for you, whether it's worth interacting with those people or doing something different, to be able to take on a challenge that you think is worth taking on, to guide you to the kind of work, for example, that you find satisfying and spend that time more within your body with your frontal lobe switched on, really experiencing it. That's a hero's journey without even having to travel a kilometre. For sure. And that thing about using your emotions as a guide, I hadn't necessarily picked up on the articulation of it like that. But to me, that's something that's absolutely worth considering. But also, on the other hand, you could see that if you weren't able to use your emotions as a guide, that would be quite distressing. And again, I reminds me of the metaphor that you mentioned before in terms of being in a car that you're only able to change the direction of the car with one finger on the steering wheel in terms of only minute movements. And I know that for our other case example, with we're calling him Ryan, he had another really good analogy of a car too. And so again, like, yeah, as, as we speak about, I, it just strikes me how difficult it would be to not be able to rely on your emotions as a guide like that. And I wonder if Ryan's analogy of the car could also help consolidate that idea. Yes, uh, we'll, we'll get onto that in a sec, but I'll just highlight what you're saying about emotions and the usefulness of being directly in touch with our emotions. It's the word itself, emotions, motion moving us. The purpose of our emotions is to help us move toward or away from things. It's to help process things. It's to help animate us. At times it's appropriate to feel angry, for example, and respond to that because it might be an indication that someone else is crossing a boundary with us. But also feeling sad can be telling us that a connection with something that we might have lost is worthwhile. Grief as well reminds us of the importance and the value of what we're attached to or connected with. All emotions, even painful emotions, have some kind of helpful meaning that's ultimately designed to guide us in some kind of way. So I think that's a really important point that you're making. And so, yes, going to Ryan's situation, so he described at first how he'd look at life with emotional detachment and spend a lot of time in his head. And early on he described how he put a lot of trust in my ability to dissociate. He said, I'm on autopilot through most of my days. I don't remember the things I've said or done. I feel like I'm not a real person. I disappear into the crowd. Then he described even having different versions of himself that he gave different names. But part of his experience of being on autopilot, he called it like backseating, like being in the backseat rather than the front seat of his car. And later on he described that it's as though he would be in a car, but the engine light would be on, but nothing was happening and the system was overheating. Whereas after we talk about some of the changes he went through, he was back in the driver's seat and the car might be running a bit rough. And he felt that therapy was coming along to see a mechanic to help his car get rebuilt. And that with that, 
now he's suddenly back in the driver's seat and the engine light is on and he can see it. So in other words, that feeling of a little bit more control. But where this started off is he described his depersonalization experiences as being like backseating. I will not be present and run on autopilot. I thought, well, backseating, what a descriptive way of describing more like being in the backseat than being in the driver's seat. But just showing how there was also a bit of an incentive for this that might otherwise have been missed if he didn't express this is he said, to get into the back seat, to engage in this back seating, it's like I'm focusing my eyes. It's a gateway to the back seat, the final stage of dissociating. So he had some insight and awareness that he was actually almost deliberately inducing that feeling of not being in his body in the driver's seat. But the cost of it was that he felt he wasn't in control of the vehicle. So this shows the ambivalence that can come up with depersonalization. There's the desire for numbing pain and avoidance, but you lose control at the same time. And so Ryan's story was one of having to go through that experience of recognizing and feeling his emotions as he knew he needed to do. And then he could choose based on everything, based on the whole range of emotions that he had. But to get to that stage... It was pretty challenging because, as he said, he had to develop some more direct alternate strategies to deal with stressful situations. And I'll just give those examples first. We're almost jumping to the end with Ryan with where he got to. But he said that now if he was in a very challenging situation, he's more inclined to tell someone that he didn't want to discuss a difficult topic further. Or he might choose to step outside rather than feel overwhelmed or flooded with emotion at the time. And he said that now rather than aggressively defend his position, if it might be in an argument or something like that or a discussion, he now felt more able to choose how he might react or respond. So that was part of that recognising and feeling all his emotions and, and then being able to choose based on all of that. So ultimately how Ryan reached that point is he described that the more I sit with things, the easier it is to remember things. It's an understanding of not having that instant shutdown. So something about this backseating idea, that's almost a bit deliberate. But there's also something about this shutting down mechanism that's almost partly automatic, but there's a little bit of intention there that he recognised before there was this feeling like an instant shutdown. But just as with Jason, then he might dampen feelings but it led to feeling out of control, like you save the vehicle. So now he describes that that other version of him, a more integrated version, has hope and feels happy, even though he might experience discomfort more. He described how he had a painful condition in his knees long term, and often he hadn't felt that. Now he feels it more, the pain. But now he also feels hunger more, whereas at times before he'd go for even some days without eating, he feels tiredness more that can guide him and he realises that getting sleep is important to him. So now if he's facing a challenging situation, he'll look to have some food, to have got enough sleep, that kind of thing. He realises that there's certain routines that can help. And then he says, rather than just getting from A to B... He thinks how he might manage and negotiate that. And so at times he is more likely to engage in some kind of self-talk as well. If he finds himself just being triggered or starting to react a certain way or even starting to depersonalise, he might tend to say, it's not helpful. I'm just here to do what I'm here to do. How can I do that and be in control? then using some of these other mechanisms, even including sometimes like singing songs to himself that have a bit of an uplifting mood. So he again has found some strategies that help be a little bit more assured, whereas before, as he said, he was like a kid playing with matches. He's trying to use dissociation to get through various situations and not aware of the pitfalls. So again, his is an uplifting kind of situation where he's making rapid progress from accepting his reactions and, as he emphasises, showing more self-acceptance, showing self-love, self-acceptance and deciding that he doesn't want to be so dissociated when things are happening. He describes that as a self-love approach and an acceptance approach. That's a delightful way to put it. 
Well, I find that notion of the different versions of himself that, that Ryan experiences just absolutely fascinating. I think you mentioned that Jason experienced something similar in terms of having maybe multiple personas that they felt that they could switch between. And it seems that that might be, you'd obviously know a lot more about this than I would, but in terms of where dissociative identity disorder comes from, from potentially having multiple versions within our personality and maybe switching between different versions of those in order to escape pain, it potentially feels like at times. And and it was, it was interesting as you were describing that there, because I suppose I think on some level, I think all of us do that a little bit in terms of what came to mind for me was, you know, Dada, at university, I had a different name in terms of I was called by a nickname. And even, you know, at school and, you know, when I lived overseas, I was called by different names at all times. There was, you know, Roe or, you know, got different names overseas, all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, you'd almost feel that on some level you'd embody this slight nuance within your personality. And obviously a bit had to do with the, you know, group dynamic that you were in at this time. But, you know, without necessarily realising it at the time, you know, I'd almost switch between kind of Roe and Rowan in terms of who I was talking to at that time. So I suppose if you relied on that for a tangible benefit that you were able to escape pain you could see how that could happen I think it happens similarly with people who speak multiple languages it's almost like they embody a slightly different personality with each language that they speak and so again I think if you were using these mechanisms as an adaptive feature in order to escape pain Again, I, I could just completely see how someone would adopt it as a more long-term approach. Yes, and I think that's partly where it's helpful using the examples so helpfully described by Jason and Ryan because we can see some of that maybe early development of DID-type reactions, even though a lot of what they're experiencing was depersonalization. But I think like you're saying as well, yes, we tend to have a more in a sense, integrated idea of ourselves or consistent ideas of our personality than might be the case. Because if we stop and think about how we tend to react in one situation compared with another, how we might react at work compared to being at a party with friends in a different situation, maybe when we're with our family compared to being with a certain group of friends or a different group of friends, different settings call for different things from us. And so we tend to respond a fair bit to the setting that we're in and some of the social expectations of that, whilst having this idea within ourselves of us being very consistent. And a lot of the personality research suggests that that view is somewhat distorted, even though it gives us more of a sense of being an integrated person, so to speak. Yes, but there are different situations where we will react in different ways, and that can become quite exaggerated, the notion with, especially dissociative identity disorder or when people have that depersonalization to a certain level there's this extra feeling of distinctiveness and separateness between one part of ourselves and another and when it gets to such a stage that people have amnesia between parts for example it gets to the stage where we call that structural dissociation and that can have extra complications to it because there's that less of a sense of integration less consistent memory less consistent sense of identity and that goes more with dissociative identity disorder which we which we might talk about more on another occasion soon well let's get into some of the treatment for more entrenched depersonalization and derealization and other dissociation disorders too how are we able to treat some of this stuff because it's one of the things that we've mentioned before on the podcast that it's not so readily treatable through medication is it Yes, so I think one of the main things is a greater understanding and awareness of what dissociation relates to, what dissociative experiences come from, what these dissociative conditions might reflect in different ways. Understanding the connection between dissociative experience and repeated painful experience in childhood, often around repeated abuse or trauma or neglect. So there would have been that incentive to switch off, including using hypnotic mechanisms. If people understand that, then hopefully people understand the rationale more for the way of addressing that is to look to manage with painful experience within your own skin with your frontal lobe switched on. So in other words, not using that level of cognitive and emotional avoidance. Now, in terms of dealing with the overwhelming aspect of dissociation, like there's too much stimulation, so our brain's just overloaded, and so we can't process information or think straight. 
As well as that numbing aspect, it's good to use arousal management strategies. So this can include breathing techniques, some form of yoga or meditation or anything that we find quite relaxing in certain ways. Also physical exercise is good. Also managing basic daily routines and cycles. So looking at our eating, making it somewhat regular, sleeping, looking to get a regular sleep routine or at least giving ourselves a chance of that by the way we look to establish a sleep routine. So sleep, exercise, diet. So exercise helps very much generally for stress management and helping our body function well. That's also a good practice for filling yourself within your body, exercise as well, but certainly arousal management. So if we've got that understanding and ways of tempering our stress reactions, then there's less need to dissociate to some extent. Because part of it involves that trance-like state, we can also use grounding techniques. So grounding techniques like, for example, focusing on the world around us, even focusing on objects in the room around us, even looking at our feet on the floor and feeling our feet against the floor, that's one kind of grounding technique as well. But just generally being grounded is looking to be within your own skin, be within your body with your frontal lobe switched on, aware of the world around you. Sometimes even simply describing in detail some of the objects that you can see around you is a grounding technique. And as one delightful spontaneous example, again, Jason's example of now I take a bit of time each day to get everything out of mind, I look around for a few minutes and just sort of notice what's around him. Think, hey, how cool it is, there's something rather than nothing. Or just generally noticing the things around us for a few minutes, that's a very good grounding technique. Then beyond that, it's also considering sometimes in therapy, seeking therapy to help address ongoing depression or trauma reactions or drug and alcohol problems or other signs of personality difficulties such as feeling difficulties with managing impulses or regulating our emotions, that kind of thing. So different kind of stress management techniques can help there. So dealing with additional reactions because often when people have dissociative experiences they might have several other reactions at a similar time including trauma reactions and depression would be quite common. Well, it seems to me then, Dad, and you know, this could be a, a, a bit of a grand oversimplification in some ways, but it seems to me that potentially dissociation develops a bit from, for example, someone experiencing a quite overwhelming traumatic event most of the time and, and then almost learning to react in that certain way when maybe stuff's a little bit less traumatic, but at the same time when there are uncomfortable emotions. And what I wonder about that then is, is there any... I suppose, danger in looking into this sort of stuff. Because if someone's experienced some quite painful memories in their past that, for example, they've been able to numb themselves out of, is it the case that when they connect more with, their, with the negative side of themselves in terms of the emotions that they feel, that it could bring up a whole bunch of traumatic memories that they could potentially re-experience in some ways? Or is it more that in therapy you look to... I suppose, reframe the way that someone would experience those feelings going forward without necessarily looking to, hesitate to use the term, but dwell so much on what's happened in the past. Okay, now I think certainly if very significant trauma memories come up, that's usually when it's important for people to seek therapy to help with that because there are some quite specific therapy techniques. That doesn't always mean using what's a very regular technique for post-traumatic stress disorder called exposure which is directly reliving trauma memories because for some people that can be quite overwhelming especially if people have long-term dissociative patterns which reflect that the person does feel overwhelmed by too much distress and just too much exposure to trauma memories before the person's ready might be difficult it might be better in those situations that the person learns how their trauma memories are triggered and managing the triggers and anticipating when the triggers might come up and looking for a way of responding to the triggers to look to regulate one's emotions or downregulate, so to speak, find some way of grounding and calming oneself rather than have to work through the full trauma memories. Some people will be in a position where it's worth directly working through the trauma memories, often with a therapist, to defuse their emotional impact, the emotional intensity of them. But I find often when I see people with dissociative experiences, 
I go lighter on, often on the exposure, unless someone's experiencing themselves as being very stable in their life. It's a good time to work on that kind of therapy. There's not too much else happening at the time. People have good supports and things like that. But not everybody has to work through their trauma memories using exposure. For some people, as you say, it will be very unsettling. And a range of other situations too. If we feel really overwhelmed, sometimes we just get by any which way we can, including using distraction for a period of time. But then if we do use distraction or have some way of looking to dampen our reactions, then looking to switch on afterwards and keeping our routines of sleep, diet, exercise going and using our stress management techniques at other times, looking to be within our own skin, experiencing our feelings at other times. And again, I think, like you said earlier, in terms of Jason's example, what stands out to me there is the importance of self-compassion. And again, it comes back to that, that I think of that goodwill hunting <laughs> scene in my head with, you know, Robin Williams there and, you know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And, and it, it's not. It's not, as we've discussed today. And, and if there's anything that I take from all this, and, and particularly today's episode where we discuss potentially some of the earlier stages of, of some of this stuff is that, you know, human psychology, it, it's all on a spectrum. And it's not as if people get to some threshold of, of trauma or something and then induce a completely different brain that, you know, has a completely different set of experiences and, and, per, and set of parameters to deal with. On some level, I think we're, you know, we're all similar and, and we all potentially come across similar challenges in different ways. And, and if there's anything, yeah, that stands out to me, it's, it's just how someone could find themselves in this situation. And, and as I said at the start, we've got this real Hollywood view of, of some of these experiences. But at the same time, when I think when you walk through some of this stuff, you can see how it can develop. And you can relate to some of the experiences, albeit not wanting to trivialise people who are in that situation and, and who do experience a very legitimate, disordered way of thinking that way. But, but again, it, it, to me, it just comes back to having empathy and, and particularly for yourself in that situation because, again, I, I always just come back to that, uh, the Robin Williams, you know, it's not your fault because it, it's not. That's a really good way of putting it, the importance of self-compassion, self-love, self-acceptance, backing yourself. And a big part of that is drawing on positive supports around you And a big part of that is especially choosing relationships or letting relationships develop where people are also supportive or empathic and kind and watching out a bit for relationships where people might be more undermining or abusive or a number of relationships that could be more negative energy that way. And sure, we can all have conflict in relationships at some times and it could be normal, but being discerning in relationships, especially if people have had abusive past experience. That's a theme in life and a big part of being self-compassionate, showing self-compassion and self-love is drawing on the positive and genuine love of others around you. Well, as always, we'll put all of the resources up for today's podcast at psychspeels.com.au and you can catch today's episode page and all the other episode pages there. But thanks so much for, for chatting to me about this today, Dad. And also, and I know you'll have your own way of saying thank you, but thank you so much to, to Jason and Ryan, whoever you are. I certainly know that I've gained a lot from you both allowing us to share your experience. And so if you are listening to today's podcast, thank you so much for that. Yes, thank you so much, Jason and Ryan. They're very honest and inspiring examples, and I think they'll help a lot of people. Thank you. Good then, Ryan. Thank you too.